This episode of Sleepy is proudly sponsored by ButcherBox. If you've listened to Sleepy for a while, you know that I love good food, eating well, and treating my body right so that I can take on my days. Well, ButcherBox helps you do exactly that. They deliver super high-quality, 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, crate-free pork, and wild-caught seafood right to your door. It's humanely raised, no antibiotics or added hormones. They have a huge variety to choose from. They are excellent deals. They've got recipes and guides and tips included, and there's free shipping, always. Eating well is a huge factor in getting a good night's sleep, as is sometimes saving the trip to the grocery store and taking some stress out of your daily schedule. I have been loving these deliveries for those reasons. Been cooking up their uh, steak tips with eggs in the morning with butter and scallions and soy sauce, and I also made a delicious brine chicken roast with lemon parsley gravy. So good. The prices for this kind of quality and convenience is really impressive. Uh, yeah, ButcherBox has made me very happy. So sign up at butcherbox.com sleepy and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com sleepy and use code SLEEPY to choose your free-for-a-year offer. Plus, get $20 off your first order. ButcherBox.com slash SLEEPY. Eat well, sleep well. Imagine unlocking a version of yourself that's unstoppable, where mental barriers no longer hold you back. Listen to Mentally Stronger with me, Amy Morin, therapist and international best-selling author, here to guide you on a journey to reaching your greatest potential. Every Monday, I bring you into conversations with some of the most fascinating minds, experts, authors, entrepreneurs, athletes, and musicians. They don't just share stories. They reveal the mental strategies that propelled them to the top. But here's the real magic. At the end of each episode, I break down their wisdom into practical therapist-approved advice. In my solo episodes, I dive deep into the techniques that build mental strength. It's like having your own personal therapy session as you discover how to turn these insights into steps you can take right now. This podcast isn't just for those facing mental health challenges. It's for anyone who wants to push their limits, achieve peak performance, and truly thrive. Are you ready to unlock your full potential? Then it's time to become mentally stronger. Subscribe to Mentally Stronger with therapist Amy Morin, available wherever you love to listen to podcasts. Hi, my name is Otis Gray, and you're listening to Sleepy. A podcast where I read you to sleep. Tonight, I'm reading a book I've wanted to for quite a while now. Walden, or Life in the Woods, by Henry David Thoreau. I think all of us have this curiosity about just walking out the door into nature or into the world and surviving with only ourselves escaping everything we know all the rules and the things that society expects of us to just experience the world in its raw form searching for some kind of truth by stripping yourself of everything you know well for many people Walden has inspired some kind of truth. 
for over 150 years now. So lay your head down, settle in, fix your pillow just how you like it, feel yourself slowly melt into your bed, close your eyes, and let me read to you. When I wrote the following pages, or rather the bulk of them, I lived alone in the woods, a mile from any neighbor, in a house which I had built myself on the shore of Walden Pond in Concord, Massachusetts, and earned my living by the labor of my hands only. I lived there two years and two months. At present, I am a sojourner in a civilized life again. I should not obtrude my affairs so much on the notice of my readers if very particular inquiries had not been made by my townsmen concerning my mode of life which some would call impertinent, though they do not appear to me at all impertinent, but considering the circumstances, very natural and pertinent. Some have asked what I got to eat, if I did not feel lonesome, if I was not afraid, and the like. Others have been curious to learn what portion of my income I devoted to charitable purposes, and some, who have large families, how many poor children I maintained. I will therefore ask those of my readers who feel no particular interest in me to pardon me if I undertake to answer some of these questions in this book. In most books, the I, or the first person, is omitted. In this, it will be retained. That, in respect to egotism, is the main difference. We commonly don't remember that it is, after all, always the first person that is speaking. I should not talk so much about myself if there or anybody else whom I knew as well. Unfortunately, I am confined to this theme by the narrowness of my experience. Moreover, I, on my side, require of every writer, first or last, a simple and sincere account of his own life, and not merely what he has heard of other men's lives, some such account as he would send to his kindred from a distant land, for if he has lived sincerely it must have been in a distant land to me. Perhaps these pages are more particularly addressed to poor students. As for the rest of my readers, they will accept such portions as apply to them. I trust that none will stretch the seams in putting on the coat, for it may do good service to him who it fits. I would fain say something, not so much concerning the Chinese and the Sandwich Islanders as you who read these pages, who are said to live in New England. Something about your condition, especially your outward condition or circumstances in this world, in this town, what it is, whether it is necessary to be as bad as it is, whether it cannot be improved as well as not. I have traveled a good deal in Concord, and everywhere, in shops and offices and fields, the inhabitants have appeared to me to be doing penance in a thousand remarkable ways. What I have heard of Brahmins, sitting exposed to four fires and looking in the face of the sun or hanging suspended with their heads downwards over flames or looking at the heavens over their shoulders until it becomes impossible for them to resume their natural position while from the twist of the neck nothing but liquids can pass into the stomach or dwelling chained for life at the foot of a tree or measuring with their bodies like caterpillars the breadth of vast empires or standing on one leg on the tops of pillars. Even these forms of conscious penance are hardly more incredible and astonishing than the scenes which I daily witness.
The twelve labors of Hercules were trifling in comparison with those which my neighbors have undertaken, for they were only twelve and had an end. But I could never see that these men slew or captured any monster or finished any labor. They have no friend Iolus to burn with a hot iron the root of Hydra's head, but as soon as one head is crushed, two spring up. I see young men, my townsmen, whose misfortune it is to have inherited homes, houses, barns, cattle, and farming tools, for these are more easily acquired than got rid of. Better if they had not been born into the open pasture and suckled by a wolf, that they might not have seen with clearer eyes what field they were called to labor in. Who made them serfs of the soil? Why should they eat their sixty acres when man is condemned to eat only his peck of dirt? Why should they begin digging their graves as soon as they're born? They've got to live a man's life pushing all these things before them and get on as well as they can. How many a poor immortal soul have I met well nigh crushed and smothered under its load, creeping down the road of life, pushing before it a barn of seventy-five feet by forty, its Aegean stables never cleansed, and one hundred acres of land tillage, mowing, pasture, and woodlot. The portionless who struggle with no such unnecessary inherited encumbrances find it labor enough to subdue and cultivate a few cubic feet of flesh. But men labor under a mistake. The better part of a man is soon plowed into the soil for compost. By a seeming fate commonly called necessity, they are employed, as it says in the old book, laying up treasures which moth and rust will corrupt and thieves break through and steal. It is a fool's life, as they will find when they get to the end of it, if not before. It is said that the Deucalion and Pyra created men by throwing stones over their heads behind them. Inde genus durum sumum, experience que laborum, et documenta damis qua sumis origine nati. Or, as Raleigh rhymes in its sonorous way, from thence our kind heart it is, enduring pain and care, approving that our bodies of a stony nature are. So much for a blind obedience to a blundering oracle, throwing the stones over their heads behind them and not seeing where they fell. Most men, even in this contemporaratively free country, through mere ignorance and mistake, are so occupied with the factitious cares and superfluously coarse labors of life that its finer fruits cannot be plucked by them. Their fingers, from excessive toil, are too clumsy and tremble too much for that. Actually, the laboring man has not leisure for a true integrity day by day. He cannot afford to sustain the manless relations to men. His labor would be depreciated in the market. He has no time to be anything but a machine. How can he remember well his ignorance, which his growth requires, who is so often to use his knowledge? We should feed and clothe him gratuitously sometimes, and recruit him with our cordials before we judge of him. The finest qualities of our nature, like the bloom on fruits, can be preserved only by the most delicate handling. Yet we do not treat ourselves nor one another thus tenderly. Some of you, we all know, are poor, find it hard to live, are sometimes, as it were, gasping for breath. I have no doubt that some of you who read this book are unable to pay for all the dinners which you have actually eaten, 
over the coats and shoes which are fast wearing or are already worn out, and have come to this page to spend borrowed or stolen time, robbing your creditors of an hour. It is very evident what mean and sneaking lives many of you live, for my sight has been wetted by experience, always on the limits, trying to get into business and trying to get out of debt. A very ancient slow, called by the Latins ace alienum, another's brass, for some of their coins were made of brass, still living and dying and buried by this other's brass, always promising to pay, promising to pay, tomorrow and dying today, insolvent, seeking to curry favor, to get wisdom, by how many modes only not state prison offenses, lying, flattering, voting, contracting yourselves into a nutshell of civility, on dilating into an atmosphere of thin or vaporous generosity, that you may persuade your neighbor to let you make his shoes, or his hat, or his coat, or his carriage, or import his groceries for him, making yourselves sick, that you may lay up something against a sick day, something to be tucked away in an old chest, or in a stocking behind the plastering, or more safely in the brick bank, no matter where, no matter how much or how little. I sometimes wonder that we can be so frivolous. I may almost say as to attend to the gross but somewhat foreign form of servitude called Negro slavery. There are so many keen and subtle masters that enslave both North and South. It is hard to have a Southern overseer. It is worse to have a Northern one. But worst of all, when you are the slave driver of yourself. Talk of a divinity in man. Look at the teamster on the highway, wending to market by day or night. Does any divinity stir within him? His highest duty to fodder and water his horses. What is his destiny to him compared with the shipping interest? Does not he drive for squire make a stir? How godlike, how immortal is he? See how he cowers and sneaks, how vaguely all day he fears not being immortal nor divine but the slave and prisoner of his own opinion of himself, of fame won by his own deeds. Public opinion is a weak tyrant compared with our own private opinion. What a man thinks of himself, that it is which determines or rather indicates his fate. Self-emancipation, even in the West Indian provinces of the fancy and imagination, what Wilberforce is there to bring that about? Think also of the ladies of the land weaving toilet cushions against the last day, not to betray too green an interest in their fates, as if you could kill time without injuring eternity. The mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation. What is called resignation is confirmed desperation. From that desperate city you go into the desperate country and have to console yourself with bravery of minks and muskrats. A stereotyped but unconscious despair is concealed even under what are called the games and amusements of mankind. There is no play in them, for this comes after work, but it is the characteristic of wisdom not to do desperate things. When we consider what, to use the words of catechism, is the chief end of man, and what are the true necessities and means of life, it appears as if men had deliberately chosen the common mode of living because they preferred it to any other. 
yet they honestly think there is no choice left. But alert and healthy natures remember that the sun rose clear. It is never too late to give up our prejudices. No way of thinking or doing, however ancient, can be trusted without proof. What everybody echoes or in silence passes by as true today may turn out to be falsehood tomorrow, mere smoke of opinion, which some had trusted for a cloud that would sprinkle fertilizing rain on their fields. What old people say you cannot do, you try and find that you can. Old deeds for old people and new deeds for new. Old people did not know enough once, perchance, to fetch fresh fuel to keep the fire going. New people put a little dry wood under a pot and are whirled round the globe with the speed of birds, in a way to kill old people, as the phrase is. Age is no better, hardly so well qualified for an instructor as youth, for it has not profited so much as it has lost. One may almost doubt if the wisest man has learned anything of absolute value by living. Practically, the old have no very important advice to give the young. Their own experience has been so partial, and their lives have been such miserable failures, for private reasons as they must believe, and it may be that some faith left which belies that experience, and they are only less young than they were. I have lived some thirty years on this planet, and I have yet to hear the first syllable of valuable or even earnest advice from my seniors. They have told me nothing, and probably cannot tell me anything to the purpose. Here is life, an experiment to the great extent untried by me, but it does not avail me that they have tried it. If I have any experience which I think valuable, I am sure to reflect that this my mentors said nothing about. One farmer says to me, you cannot live on vegetable food solely, for it furnishes nothing to make bones with. And so he religiously devotes a part of his day to supplying his system with raw material of bones. Walking all the while he talks behind his oxen, which with vegetable-made bones jerk him and his lumbering plow along in spite of every obstacle. Some things are really necessaries of life in some circles, and most helpless and diseased, which in others are luxuries merely, and in others still are entirely unknown. The whole ground of human life seems to some to have been gone over by their predecessors, both the heights and the valleys and all things to have been cared for. According to Evelyn, the wise Solomon prescribed ordinances for the very distance of trees, and the Roman praetors have decided how often you may go to your neighbor's land to gather acorns which fall on it without trespass, and what share belongs to that neighbor. Hippocrates has even left directions how we should cut our nails. That is, even with the ends of the fingers neither shorter nor longer. Undoubtedly, the very tedium and ennui which presume to have exhausted the variety and the joys of life are as old as Adam. But man's capacities have never been measured, nor are we to judge of what he can do by any precedence. So little has been tried. Whatever have been thy failures hitherto, be not afflicted, my child, for who shall assign to thee what thou hast left undone? We might try our lives by a thousand simple tests. For instance, that the same sun which ripens my beans 
illumines at once a system of earths like ours. If I had remembered this, it would have been prevented by some mistakes. This was not the light in which I hoed them. The stars are the apexes of what wonderful triangles. What distant and different beings in the various mansions of the universe are contemplating the same one at the very moment? Nature and human life are as various as our several constitutions. Who shall say that prospect life offers to another? Could a greater miracle take place than for us to look through each other's eyes for an instant? We should live in all these ages of the world in an hour. I, all in the world's of ages, history, poetry, mythology. I know of no reading of another's experience so startling and informing as this would be. The greater part of what my neighbors call good, I believe in my soul to be bad. And if I repent of anything, it is very likely to be my good behavior. What demon possessed me that I behaved so well? You may say the wisest thing you can, old man. You who have lived seventy years, not without honor of a kind, I hear an irresistible voice which invites me away from all that. One generation abandons the enterprises of another like stranded vessels. I think that we may safely trust a good deal more than we do. We may waive so much care of ourselves as we honestly bestow elsewhere. Nature is as well adapted to our weaknesses as to our strength. The incessant anxiety and strain of some is a well-nigh incurable form of disease. We are made to exaggerate the importance of what work we do, and yet how much is not done by us? Or what if we had been taken sick? How vigilant we are, determined not to live by faith if we can avoid it, all the day long on the alert. At night we unwillingly say our prayers and commit ourselves to uncertainties. So thoroughly and sincerely are we compelled to live, reverencing our lives and denying the possibility of change. This is the only way, we say, but there are as many ways as there can be drawn radii from one center. All range is a miracle to contemplate, but it is a miracle which is taking place every instant. Confucius said, To know that we know what we know, and that we do not know what we do not know. That is true knowledge. When one man has reduced a fact of imagination to be a fact of his understanding, I foresee that all men will at length establish their lives on that basis. Let us consider for a moment what most of the trouble and anxiety which I have referred to is about, and how much it is necessary that we be troubled, or at least careful, it would be some advantage to live a primitive and frontier life, though in the midst of an outward civilization, if only to learn what are the gross necessities of life, and what methods have been taken to obtain them, or even to look over the old-day books of the merchants, to see what it is that men are most commonly bought at the stores, what they store, that is, what are the grossest groceries, for the improvements of ages have had but little influence on the essential laws of man's existence, as our skeletons, probably, are not to be distinguished from those of our ancestors. By the words necessary of life, I mean whatever, of all that man obtains by his own exertions, has been from the first or from long use has become so important to human life that few, if any, whether from savageness 
or poverty or philosophy ever attempt to do without it. To many creatures, there is in this sense but one necessary of life, food. To the bison of the prairie, it is a few inches of palatable grass with water to drink unless he seeks the shelter of the forest or the mountain shadow. None of the brute creation requires more than food and shelter. The necessities of life for man in this climate may accurately enough be distributed under the several heads of food, shelter, clothing, and fuel. For not till we have secured these are we prepared to entertain the true problems of life with freedom and a prospect of success. Man has invented not only houses but clothes and cooked food, and possibly from accidental discovery of the warmth of fire, and in consequent use of it, at first a luxury arose the present necessity to sit by it. We observe cats and dogs acquiring the same second nature. By proper shelter and clothing, we legitimately retain our own internal heat, but with an excess of these, or of fuel, that is, with an external heat greater than our own internal, may not cookery properly be said to begin? Darwin the naturalist says of the inhabitants of Tierra del Fuego that while his own party, who were well clothed and sitting close to a fire, were far from too warm, these naked savages who were farther off were observed, to his great surprise, to be streaming with perspiration at undergoing such a roasting. So we are told the New Hollander goes naked with impunity, while the European shivers in his clothes. Is it impossible to combine the hardiness of these savages with the intellectualness of a civilized man? According to Liebig, man's body is a stove, and food the fuel which keeps up the internal combustion in the lungs. In cold weather we eat more, in warm less. The animal heat is the result of a slow combustion, and disease and death take place when this is too rapid, or from some defect in the draft, the fire goes out. Of course the vital heat is not to be confounded with fire, but so much for analogy. It appears, therefore, from the above list that the expression animal life is nearly synonymous with the expression animal heat, for while food may be regarded as the fuel which keeps the fire within us, and fuel serves only to prepare that food or to increase the warmth of our bodies by addition from without. Shelter and clothing also serve to retain the heat thus generated and absorbed. The grand necessity, then, from our bodies is to keep warm, to keep the vital heat in us. What pains we accordingly take, not only with our food and clothing and shelter, but with our beds and our night clothes, robbing the nests and breasts of birds to prepare this shelter within a shelter, as the mole has its bed of grass and leaves at the end of its burrow. The poor man is wont to complain that this cold world, and too cold, no less physical than social, we refer directly to a great part of our ales. The summer, in some climates, makes possible to man a sort of Elysian life. Fuel, except to cook his food, is then unnecessary. The sun is his fire and many of the fruits are sufficiently cooked by its rays. While food generally is more various and more easily obtained, the clothing and shelter are wholly or half unnecessary. At the present day, and in this country, as I find by my own experience, a few implements, 
a knife, an axe, a spade, a wheelbarrow, etc., and for the studious lamplight stationery and access to a few books. Rank next to necessaries, and can all be obtained at a trifling cost. Yet some, not wise, go to the other side of the globe, to barbarous and unhealthy regions, and devote themselves to trade for ten or twenty years in order that they may live, that is, keep comfortably warm, and die in New England at last. The luxuriously rich are not simply kept comfortably warm, but are naturally hot. As I implied before, they are cooked, of course, a la mode. Most of the luxuries and many of the so-called comforts of life are not only not indispensable, but positive hindrances to the elevation of mankind. With respect to luxuries and comforts, the wisest have ever lived a more simple and meager life than the poor. The ancient philosophers, Chinese, Hindu, Persian, and the Greek were a class than which none has been poorer in outward riches, none so rich and inward. We know not much about them. It is remarkable that we know so much of them as we do. The same is true of the more modern reformers and benefactors of their race. None can be an impartial or wise observer of human life but from the vantage ground of what we would call voluntary poverty. Of a life of luxury, the fruit is luxury. Whether in agriculture or commerce or literature or art, there are nowadays professors of philosophy, but not philosophers. Yet it is admirable to profess because it was once admirable to live. To be a philosopher is not merely to have subtle thoughts, nor even to found a school, but as to live according to its dictates, a life of simplicity, independence, magnanimity, and trust. It is to solve some of the problems of life, not only theoretically, but practically. The success of great scholars and thinkers is commonly a courtier-like success, not kingly, not manly. They make shift to live merely by conformity, practically as their fathers did, and, and are in no sense the progenitors of a nobler race of men. But why do men degenerate ever? What makes families run out? What is the nature of luxury which enervates and destroys nations? Are we sure that there is none of it in our own lives? The philosopher is in advance of his age in the outward form of his life. He is not fed, sheltered, clothed, warm, like he is like his contemporaries. How can a man be a philosopher and not maintain his vital heat by better methods than other men? When a man is warmed by the several modes which I have described, what does he want next? Surely not more warmth of the same kind, as more and richer food, larger and more splendid houses, finer and more abundant clothing, but numerous, incessant, and hotter fires, and the like. When he has obtained those things which are necessary to life, there is another alternative than to obtain the superfluities, and that is to adventure on life now, his vacation from humbler toil having commenced. The soil, it appears, is suited to the seed, for it has sent its radical downward, and it may now send its shoot upward also with confidence. Why has man rooted himself thus firmly in the earth but that he may rise in the same proportion to the heavens above. For the nobler plants are valued for fruit that they bear at last in the air and light, far from the ground, and are not treated like the humbler esculents, 
which though they may be biennials, are cultivated only till they have perfected their root, and often cut at the top for this purpose, so that most would not know them in their flowering season. I do not mean to prescribe rules to strong and valiant natures, who will mind their own affairs whether in heaven or hell, and perchance build more magnificently and spend more lavishly than the richest, without ever impoverishing themselves, not knowing how they live. If indeed they are any such as has been dreamed, nor to those who find encouragement and inspiration in precisely the present condition of things, and cherish it with fondness and enthusiasm of lovers, and to some extent I reckon myself in this number. I do not speak to those who are well employed, in whatever circumstances, and they know whether they are employed or not, but mainly to the mass of men who are discontented, and idly complaining of the hardness of their lot, or of the times when they might improve them. There are some who complain most energetically and inconsolably of any, because they are, as they say, doing their duty. I also have in mind that seemingly wealthy, but most terribly impoverished class of all, who have accumulated dross, but know not how to use it, or get rid of it, and thus have forged their own golden or silver fetters. If I should attempt to tell how I have desired to spend my life in years past, it would probably surprise those of my readers who are somewhat acquainted with its actual history. It would certainly astonish those who know nothing about it. I will only hint that at some of the enterprises I have cherished. In any weather, at any hour of the day or night, I have been anxious to improve the nick of time, and notch it on my stick, too, to stand in the meeting of two eternities, the past and the future, which is precisely the present moment, to toe that line. You will pardon some obscurities, for there are more secrets in my trade than in most men's, and yet not voluntarily kept, but inseparable from its very nature. I would gladly tell that I know about it, and never paint no admittance on my gate. I long ago lost a hound, a bay horse, and a turtle dove, and am still on their trail. Many are the travelers I have spoken concerning them, describing their tracks and what calls they answered to. I have met one or two who have heard the hound, and the tramp of the horse, and even the dove disappear behind a cloud, but they seemed as anxious to recover them if they had not lost them themselves. To anticipate, not the sunrise or the dawn merely, but, if possible, nature herself. How many mornings, summer and winter, before yet any neighbor was stirring about his business, have I been about mine? No doubt many of my townsmen have met me returning from this enterprise, farmers starting for Boston in the twilight, or woodchoppers going to their work. It is true I have never assisted the sun materially in its rising, but, doubt not, it was the last importance only to be present at it. So many autumn, I, and winter days spent outside the town, trying to hear what was in the wind, to hear and carry it expressed. I well nigh sunk all my capital in it, and lost my own breath into the bargain, running in the face of it. If it had concerned either of the political parties, depend upon it, it would have appeared in the Gazette with the earliest intelligence. At other times, watching from the observatory of some cliff or tree, to telegraph any new arrival, or waiting at evening on the hilltops for the sky to fall, that I might catch something, though I never caught much, and that 
Mana Wise would dissolve again in the sun. For a long time, I was a reporter to a journal of no very wide circulation, whose editor has never yet seen fit to print the bulk of my contributions, and as it is too common with writers, I got only my labor for my pains. However, in this case, my pains were their own reward. For many years, I was self-appointed inspector of snowstorms and rainstorms. I did my duty faithfully. Surveyor, if not highways, then to forest paths and all-across lot routes, keeping them open and ravines bridged and passable at all seasons, where the public heel had testified to their utility. I have looked after the wild stock of the town, which give a faithful herdsman a good deal of trouble by leaping fences, and I have had my eye on unfrequented nooks and corners of the farm, though I did not always know whether Jonas or Solomon worked in a particular field today. That was none of my business. I have watered the red huckleberry, the sand cherry and the nettle tree, the red pine and the black ash, the white grape and the yellow violet, which might have withered else in dry seasons. In short, I went on thus for a long time, I may say it without boasting, faithfully minding my business till it became more and more evident that my townsmen would not, after all, admit me into the list of town officers, nor make my place a sinecure with a moderate allowance. My accounts, which I can swear to have kept faithfully, I have indeed, never got audited, still less accepted, still less paid and settled. However, I have not set my heart on that. Not long since, a strolling Indian went to sell baskets at the house of a well-known lawyer in my neighborhood. Do you wish to buy any baskets, he asked. No, we do not want any, was the reply. What? exclaimed the Indian as he went outside the gate. Do you mean to starve us? Having seen his industrious white neighbors so well off that the lawyer had only to weave arguments, and by some magic wealth and standing followed, he had said to himself, I will go into business. I will weave baskets. It is a thing which I can do. Thinking that when he made his baskets he would have done his part, and then it would be the white man's to buy them. He had not discovered that it was necessary for him to make it worth the other's while to buy them, or least him think that it was so, or to make something else which it would have been worth his while to buy. I too have woven a kind of basket of a delicate texture, but I had not made it worth anyone's while to buy them. Yet not the less, in my case, did I think it worth my while to weave them, and instead of studying how to make it worth men's while to buy my baskets, I studied rather to avoid the necessity of selling them. The life which men praise and regard as successful is but one kind. Why should we exaggerate any one kind at the expense of the others? Finding that my fellow citizens were not likely to offer me any room in the courthouse or any curacy of living anywhere else, but I must shift for myself, I turned my face more exclusively than ever to the woods, where I was better known. I determined to go into business at once and not wait to acquire the usual capital, using such slender means as I had already got. My purpose in going to Walden Pond was not to live cheaply nor to live dearly there, but to transact some private business with the fewest obstacles, to be hindered from accomplishing which for want a little common sense, 
a little enterprise and business talent, appeared not so sad as foolish. I have always endeavored to acquire strict business habits. They are indispensable to every man. If your trade is with the celestial empire, then some small counting house on the coast on some Salem harbor will be fixture enough. You will export such articles as the country affords, purely native projects, much ice and pine timber and a little granite, always in native bottoms. These will be good ventures. To oversee all the details yourself in person, to be at once pilot and captain and owner and underwriter, to buy and sell and keep these accounts, to read every letter received and to write or read every letter sent, to superintend and the discharge of imports night and day, to be upon many parts of the coast almost at the same time. Often, the richest freight will be discharged upon a Jersey shore, to be your own telegraph, unweariedly sweeping the horizon, speaking all the passing vessels bound coastwise, to keep up a steady dispatch of commodities for the supply of such a distant and exorbitant market, to keep yourself informed of the state of the markets, prospects of war and peace everywhere and anticipate the tendencies of trade and civilization, taking advantage of the results of the all-exploring expeditions, using new passages and all improvements of navigation, charts to be studied, the position of reefs, and new lights and buoys to be ascertained, and ever and ever the logarithmic tables to be corrected, for by the error of some calculator the vessel often splits upon a rock that should have been reached a friendly pier, there is the untold fate of the La Perusa, universal science to be kept pace with, studying the lives of all great discoveries and navigators, great adventurers and merchants, from Hanno and the Phoenicians down to our day. In fine, account of stock to be taken from time to time, and know how you stand. It is a labor to task the faculties of a man. Such problems of profit and loss, of interest, of terror and trep, engaging all kinds of it as demand and universal knowledge. I have thought that Walden Pond would be a good place for business, not solely on account of the railroad and the ice trade. It offers the advantages which it may not be good policy to divulge. It is a good port and a good foundation. No Neva marshes to be filled, though you must everywhere build on piles of your own driving. It is said that a flood tide with a westerly wind and ice in the Neva would sweep St. Petersburg from the face of the earth. As this business was to be entered into without usual capital, it may not be easy to conjecture where those means that will still be indispensable to every such undertaking were to be obtained. As for clothing, to come at once to the practical part of the question, Perhaps we are led oftener by the love of novelty and a regard for the opinions of men in procuring it than by true utility. Let him who has work to do to recollect that the object of clothing is, first, to retain the vital heat, and secondly, in this state of society, to cover nakedness. And he may judge how much of any necessary or important work may be accomplished without adding to his wardrobe. Kings and queens who wear a suit but once, though made by some tailor or dressmaker to their majesties, cannot know the comfort of wearing a suit that fits. They are no better than the wooden horses to hang the clean clothes on. 
Every day our garments become more assimilated to ourselves, receiving the impress of the wearer's character, until we hesitate to lay them aside without such delay and medical appliances and some solemnity even as our bodies. No man ever stood even in the lower of my estimation for having a patch in his clothes, yet I am sure that there is a greater anxiety, commonly, to have fashionable, or at least clean and unpatched clothes, than to have sound conscience. But even if the rent is not mended, perhaps the worst vice betrayed is improvidence. I sometimes try my acquaintances by such tests as this. Who could wear a patch, or two extra seams only over the knee? Most behave as if they believe that their prospects for life would be ruined if they should do that. It would be easier for them to hobble to town with a broken leg than with a broken pantaloon. Often, if an accident happens to a gentleman's legs, they can be mended. But if a similar accident happens in the legs of a pantaloon, there is no help for it. But he considers not what is truly respectable, but what is respected. We know but few men, a great many coats and breeches. Dress a scarecrow in your last shift, you standing shiftless by who would not sooner salute a scarecrow. Passing a cornfield the other day, close by a hat and coat on a stake, I recognized the owner of the farm. He was only a little more weather-beaten than when I saw him last. I have heard of a dog that barked at every stranger who approached his master's premises with clothes on, but was easily quieted by a naked thief. It is an interesting question how far men would retain their relative rank if they were divested of their clothes. Could you in such case tell surely of the company of civilized men which belong to the most respected class? When Madame Pfeiffer, in her adventurous travels around the world, from east to west, had got so near home as Asiatic Russia, she says that she felt the necessity of wearing other than a traveling dress. When she went to meet the authorities, for she was now in a civilized country where people are judged at their clothes. Even in our democratic New England towns, the accidental possession of wealth and its manifestation in dress and equipage alone obtain for the possessor almost universal respect. But they who yield such respect, numerous as they are, are so far heathen and need to have a missionary sent to them. Beside, clothes introduce sewing, a kind of work which you can call endless. A woman's dress, at least, is never done. A man who has at length found something to do will not need to get a new suit to do it in. For him the old will do. That has lain dusty in the garret in the indeterminate period. Old shoes will serve a hero longer than they have served his valet. If a hero ever has a valet, bare feet are older than shoes, and he can make them do. Only when they go to the soirees and legislative halls must they have new coats, coats to change as often as the man changes in them. But if my jacket and trousers, my hat and shoes, are fit to worship God in, they will do, will they not? Whoever saw his old clothes, his old coat, actually worn out, resolved into its primitive elements, so that it was not deed of charity to bestow it on some poor boy, by him perchance be bestowed on some poorer still, or shall we say richer, who could do with less?
I say, beware of all enterprises that require new clothes, and not rather the new wear of clothes. If there is not a new man, how can the new clothes be made to fit? If you have any enterprises before you, try it in your old clothes. All men want, not something to do with, but something to do, or rather something to be. Perhaps we should never procure a new suit, however ragged or dirty the old, until we have so conducted, so enterprised, or sailed in some way that we feel like new men in the old, and that we retain it to be keeping like new wine in old bottles. Our molting season, like that of the fowls, must be a crisis in our lives. The loon retires to solitary ponds to spend it. Thus also the snake casts its slow, and the caterpillar its wormy coat. By an internal industry and expansion, for clothes are but our outmost cuticle and mortal coil. Otherwise we shall be found sailing under false colors, and be inevitably cashiered at last by our own opinion, as well of it as mankind. We don garment after garment, as if we grew like exogenous plants by addition without. Our outside and often thin and fanciful clothes are epidermis, or false skin, which partakes not of our life and may be stripped off here and there without fatal injury. Our thicker garments, constantly worn, are our cellular integument, or cortex, but our shirts are our lever, or true bark, which cannot be removed without girdling and so destroying the man. I believe that all races at some seasons wear something equivalent to the shirt. It is desirable that a man be clad so simply that he can lay his hands on himself in the dark, and that he live in all respects so compactly and preparedly that if an enemy take the town, he can, like the old philosopher, walk out the gate empty-handed without anxiety. While one thick garment is, for most purposes, as good as three thin ones, and cheap clothing can be obtained at prices really to suit customers, while a thick coat can be bought for five dollars, which will last as many years, thick pantaloons for two dollars, cowhide boots for a dollar and a half a pair, a summer hat for a quarter of a dollar, and a winter cap for sixty-two and a half cents. Or it better be made at home at a nominal cost, where he is so poor that, clad in such a suit of his own earning, there will be found wise men to do him reverence. When I ask for the garment of a particular form, my tailorness tells me gravely, they do not make them so now, not emphasizing the they at all, as if she quoted an authority as impersonal as the fates, and I find it difficult to get made what I want simply because she cannot believe that I mean what I say, that I am so rash. When I hear this oracular sentence, I am for a moment absorbed in thought, emphasizing to myself each word separately that I may come to the meaning of it, that I may find out by the degree of consanguinity they are related to me and what authority they may have in an affair which affects me so nearly. And finally, I am inclined to answer her with equal mystery, and without any emphasis to the they. It is true, they did not make them so recently, but they do now. Of what use is this measuring of me, if she does not measure my character, but only the breadth of my shoulders, as it were a peg to hang a coat on? We worship not the graces, 
nor the parse, but fashion. She spins and weaves and cuts with full authority. The head monkey at Paris puts on a traveler's cap, and all the monkeys in America do the same. I sometimes despair of getting anything quite simple honest done in this world by the help of men. They would have to be passed through a powerful press first to squeeze their old notions out of them so that they not soon get upon their legs again, and there would be someone in the company with a maggot in his head hatched from an egg deposited there nobody knows when, for not even fire kills these things, and you would have lost your labor. Nevertheless, we will not forget that some Egyptian wheat was handed down to us by a mummy. On the whole, I think that it cannot be maintained that dressing has in this or in any country risen to the dignity of an art. At present, men shift to wear what they can get. Like shipwrecked sailors, they put on what they can find on the beach. And at a little distance, whether of space or time, laugh at each other's masquerade. Every generation laughs at the old fashions, but follows religiously the new. We are amused at beholding the costume of Henry VIII or Queen Elizabeth as much as if it was that of the king or queen of the cannibal islands. All costume of a man is pitiful or grotesque. It is only the serious eye peering from the insecure life passed within and must restrain laughter and consecrate the costume of any people. Let Harlequin be taken with a fit of the colic and his trappings will have to serve that mood too. When the soldier is hit by the cannonball, rags are as becoming as purple. The childish and savage taste of men and women for new patterns keeps how many shaking and squinting through kaleidoscopes that they may discover the particular figure which this generation requires today. The manufacturers have learned that this taste is merely whimsical, of two patterns which differ only by a few threads more or less particular color. The one will be sold readily, the other lie on the shelf though it frequently remains that, after a lapse of season, the latter becomes the most fashionable. Comparatively, tattooing is not the hideous custom which it is called. It is not barbarous merely because the printing is skin-deep and unalterable. I cannot believe that our factory system is the best mode by which men can get clothing. The condition of the operatives is becoming, every day, more like that of the English. And it cannot be wondered at, since, as far as I have heard or observed, the principal object is, not that mankind may well be honestly clad, but unquestionably, that the corporations may be enriched. In the long run, men hit only what they aim at. Therefore, they should fail immediately, that they had better aim at something high. As for shelter... I will not deny that this is now a necessary of life, though there are instances of men having done without it for long periods in colder countries than this. Samuel Lang says that the Laplander in his skin dress and in a skin bag which he puts over his head and shoulders will sleep night after night in the snow, in a degree of cold which would extinguish the life of one exposed to it by any woolen clothing. He had seen them asleep thus, yet he adds, they are not hardier than other people, but probably 
Man did not live long on the earth without discovering the convenience in which there is a house, the domestic comforts which may have originally signified the satisfactions of the house more than a family, though these must be extremely partial and occasional in those climates where the house is associated in our thoughts with winter or the rainy season chiefly, and two-thirds of the year except for a parasol is unnecessary. In our climate in the summer, it is formerly almost solely a covering at night. In the Indian gazettes, a wigwam was the symbol of a day's march, and a row of them cut or painted by the bark of a tree signified so many times that they had camped. Man was not made so large-limbed and robust that he must seek to narrow this world, the wall in space such as fitted him. He was at first bare and out of doors, but he was thought to be pleasant and serene in the warm weather. By daylight, the rainy season and the winter, to say nothing of his torrid sun, would perhaps have nipped his race in the bud if he had not made haste to clothe himself with the shelter of the house. Adam and Eve, according to the fable, wore the bower before other clothes. Man wanted a home, a place of warmth or comfort, first of physical warmth, then the warmth of the affections. We may imagine a time when, in the infancy of the human race, some enterprising mortal crept into a hollow in a rock for shelter. Every child begins the world again to some extent and loves to stay outdoors, even in wet and cold. He plays house as well as horse, having an instinct for it. Who does not remember the interest with which, when young, he looked at the shelving rock or any approach to a cave. It was the natural yearning of that portion of our most primitive ancestor which still survived in us. From the cave we have advanced to the roofs of palm leaves, into the bark and boughs of linen woven and stretched, of grass and straw, of boards and shingles, of stone and tiles. At last we know not what it is to live in the open air, and our lives are domestic and more senses than we think. From the hearth in the field is a great distance. It would be well, perhaps, if we are to spend more of our days and nights without any obstruction between us and the celestial bodies. If the poet did not speak so much from under a roof, of the saint dwell there so long. Birds do not sing in caves, nor do doves cherish their innocence in dovecots. However, if one designs to construct a dwelling house, it behooves him to exercise a little Yankee shrewdness, lest after all he find himself in a workhouse, a labyrinth without a clue, a museum, an almshouse, a prison, or a splendid mausoleum instead. Consider first how slight a shelter is absolutely necessary. I have seen Penobscot Indians in this town living in tents of thin cotton cloth while the snow was nearly a foot deep around them, and I thought that they would be glad to have it deeper to keep out of the wind. Formerly, when how to get my living honestly with freedom left for my proper pursuits was a question which vexed me more than it does now, for unfortunately I am become somewhat callous. I used to see a large box by the railroad, six feet long by three wide, in which the laborers locked up their tools at night, and it suggested to me that, Every man who is hard pushed might get such a one for a dollar, 
and having bored a few auger holes in it to admit the air at least, to get into it when it rained, and at night hook down this lid, and so have freedom in his love, and his soul be free. This did not appear the worst, nor by any means a despicable alternative. You could sit up as late as you pleased, and whenever you got up, go abroad without any landlord or house lord dogging you for rent. Many a man is harassed to death to pay the rent of the larger and more luxurious box who would not have frozen to death in such a box as his. I am far from jesting. Economy is a subject which admits of being treated with levity, but it cannot be so disposed of. A comfortable house for a rude and hearty face that lived mostly out of doors was once made here almost entirely of such materials as nature furnished ready to their hands. Gookin, who was superintendent of the Indian subject of the Massachusetts colony, writing in 1674, says, The best of their houses are covered very neatly, tight and warm, with barks of trees, slipped from their bodies at those seasons when the sap is up, and made into great flakes, with pressure of weighty timber, when they are green. The meaner sort are covered with mats, and they make a kind of bulrush, and they are also indifferently tight and warm, but not so good as the former. Some I have seen sixty or a hundred feet long and thirty feet broad. I have often lodged in these wigwams and found them as warm as the best English houses. He adds that they were commonly carpeted and lined with well-wrought embroidered mats and were furnished with various utensils. The Indians have advanced so far as to regulate the effect of the wind by a mat suspended over a hole in the roof and moved by a string. Such a lodge was in the first instance constructed in a day or two at most and taken down and put up in a few hours, and every family owned one or its apartment in one. In the savage state, every family owns a shelter as good as the best and sufficient for its coarser and simpler wants. But I think that I speak within bounds when I say that, though the birds of the air have their nests, and the foxes have their holes, and the savages have their wigwams, in modern civilized society not more than one half of the families own a shelter. In the large towns and cities where civilization especially prevails, the number of those who own a shelter is a very small fraction of the whole. The rest pay an annual tax for this outside garment of all, become indispensable summer and winter, which would buy a village of Indian wigwams, but now helps to keep them poor as long as they live. I do not mean to insist that there is a disadvantage of hiring compared with owning, but it is evident that the savage owns a shelter because it costs so little. While the civilized man hires is commonly because he cannot afford to own it, nor can he, in the long run, any better afford to hire, but answers to one, by merely paying his tax, the poor civilized man secures an abode which is a palace compared with the savages. An annual rent from twenty-five to a hundred dollars, these are the country rates, entitles him to the benefit of the improvements of centuries, spacious apartments, clean paint and paper, Rumford fireplace, back-plastering, Venetian blinds, copper pump, spring lock, a commodious cellar, and many other things. 
But how happens it that he who is said to enjoy these things is so commonly a poor civilized man, while the savage who has them not is rich as a savage? If it is asserted that civilization is a real advance in the condition of man, and I think that it is, though only the wise improve their advantages, it must be shown that it has produced better dwellings without making them more costly, and the cost of a thing is the amount of what I will call life is required to be exchanged for it, immediately or in the long run. An average house in the neighborhood costs perhaps $800, and to lay up this sum will take from 10 to 15 years of the laborer's life, even if he is not encumbered with a family, estimating the pecuniary value of every man's labor at $1 a day, for if some receive more, others receive less so that he must have spent more than half of his life commonly before his wigwam will be earned. If we suppose him to pay a rent instead, this is but a doubtful choice of evils. Would the savage have been wise to exchange his wigwam for a palace on these terms? It may be guessed that I reduce almost the whole advantage of holding to the superfluous property as fund in store against the future so far as the individual is concerned, mainly to the defraying of funeral expenses. But perhaps a man is not required to bury himself. Nevertheless, this points to an important distinction between the civilized man and the savage, and no doubt they have designs on us for our benefit in making the life of civilized people an institution in which the life of this individual is to a great extent absorbed in order to preserve and perfect that of the race. But I wish to show at what a sacrifice this advantage is at present obtained, and to suggest that we possibly so live to secure all the advantage without suffering of any disadvantage. What mean ye by saying that the poor ye have always with you, or that the fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge? As I live, saith the Lord God, Ye shall not have occasion any more to use the proverb in Israel. Behold, all souls are mine. As the soul of the Father, so also the soul of the Son is mine. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. When I consider to my neighbors, the farmers of Concord, who are at least as well off as the other classes, I find that for the most part they have been toiling twenty or thirty or forty years that they may become the real owners of their farms, which commonly they have inherited with encumbrances, or else bought with hired money, and we may regard one-third of that toil as the cost of their houses, but commonly they have not paid for them yet. It is true the encumbrances sometimes outweigh the value of the farm, so that the farm itself becomes one great encumbrance, and still a man is found to inherit it, being well acquainted with it, as he says. On applying to the assessors, I am surprised to learn that they cannot at once name a dozen in the town who own their farms free and clear. If you would know the history of these homesteads, inquire at the bank where they are mortgaged. The man who is actually paid for his farm with labor on it is so rare that every neighbor can point to him. I doubt there are three such men in Concord, what has been said of these merchants that a very large majority, even 97 in a 100, are sure to fail, 
is equally true of the farmers. With regard to the merchants, however, one of them says pertinently that a great part of their failures are not genuine pecuniary failures, but merely failures to fulfill their engagements, because it is inconvenient, that is. It is the moral character that breaks down. But this puts an infinitely worse face on the matter, and suggests beside that probably not even the other three succeed in saving their souls, but are perchance bankrupt in a worse sense than they who fail honestly. Bankruptcy and repudiation are the springboards from which much of our civilization vaults and turns its somersets. But the savage stands on the unelastic plank of famine. Yet the Middlesex cattle show goes off here with a clat annually, as if all the joints of the agricultural machine were suing. The farmer is endeavoring to solve the problem of livelihood by a formula more complicated than the problem itself. To get his shoestrings, he speculates in herds of cattle. With consummate skill, he has set a trap with a hairspring to catch comfort and independence, and then, as he turned away, got his own leg into it. This is the reason he is poor, and for a similar reason we are all poor in respect to a thousand savage comforts, though surrounded by luxuries. As Chapman sings, the false society of men for earthly greatness all heavenly comforts rarefies to air. Thank you for listening to Sleepy. Good night.